Welcome to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Make sure you find the Raptor Show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. And please rate and review the show. Reminder, we're airing live on Sportsnet 360, Monday to Friday from 2 to 3 p.m. I'm your host, Wayne Liu. Uh, no Alex Wong today. His uh, contribution to the show is once again playing the HBK theme for our guest, uh, Jessica Charles, uh on my right, and uh, Joe Wolf on, on my left. Uh, obviously, you guys know them from the Scores Pound the Rock podcast. Uh, which covered the exact topics that we're going to cover today. So uh, what's going on, guys? As always. Yeah. I'm happy to rehash everything we just talked about on Pound the Rock and package it for a much bigger audience. <laughs> so give me a sense. Give me, give me a sense. Because obviously I, I saw the link at uh, 1.30 and we air live at 2 p.m. Um, so we're talking about the draft lottery that took place last night, the game that took place last night, and Correct. then the game that's going to take place tonight. I will say, though, unless we are going on rants about how Joel Embiid and the Sixers folded like a cheap tent, I don't think mm. we will cover all of the same bases we did on the podcast. You know, I, w- I wouldn't mind because uh, this, this show is, is very friendly to uh, yeah. Sixers slander, it's, Joel Embiid yeah, slander, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. Those are the types of hard-hitting metaphors you can expect to get on Pound the Rock. For anyone who doesn't listen. Is that you got some small, small pick and roll analysis? You know what I mean. Um, Sad guy, Joel. Oh yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of that recently. Okay, look, we'll we'll start with the draft lottery, um, and then we'll go to Lakers Nuggets, which was just an amazing game. Um, really quality offense played by both teams, and the, the Lakers nearly stealing it at the end, but coming up just short. Um, but prior to that, uh, the draft lottery took place. So, I mean let's start with the Raptors side of it, even though no, I don't think anyone really cares, but the Raptors went into the night with a 1% chance at the number one pick and a 4% chance at jumping into the top four. Uh, clearly they didn't hit that. It was very anticlimactic. Like it was like Mark Tatum, the second card he draws is the Raptors at 13. So they're staying where they are. I kind of asked you guys, like if you guys lo- have looked into the draft a little bit and, and seen like who you might potentially like at 13, but I, I didn't get the vibe that you guys were you know, that far into the draft process yet? Yeah, I mean, I could talk about the top three or four prospects. Like, I yeah. assume a lot of people can. But, yeah, in May, once you get past those top, top prospects, I'm a little lost. I usually start familiarizing myself with those guys closer to the draft itself. And even then, I mean, mm-hmm. like, let, let's be real. Even some of the people that are, were supposed to know what they were talking about thought it was some injustice that the Raptors took Scotty Barnes over Jalen Suggs. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, who really knows? Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point. Um, I'm at the process right now where I've watched probably like seven or eight of those like essentially Draft Express videos, although they're not made by Draft Express anymore because um, they've been brought in house by the Portland Trailblazers, who were one of the winners of last night, despite not actually getting the number one pick. Um, but uh, yeah, for anyone who's curious, uh, Adam Spinella makes some really really great like um, draft videos, sort of highlighting the prospects. I think right now for me, I, I probably like Kobe Bufkin, but. This is after um, probably an hour and a half of uh, looking at video. Um, anyway, the big story is the San Antonio Spurs end up landing the number one overall pick. They get uh, Victor Wamanyama. Um, I mean, I suppose it's it's already kind of foregone. But um, what what do you make of the the conversation around it so far? Because it's been a lot of like Woj saying this is the greatest draft prospect ever in the history of team sports. Was his he didn't just say the NBA? I brought this up the pod today too. Like yeah. Woj said. You know, this could be the greatest prospect in the history of team sports. Now, obviously, that's like at least a little hyperbole. That's a lot of uh, and, hyperbole. And and I still maintain, and like it's not to hate on Wemanyama at all, because I think he's going to be awesome. I still maintain, even when you're talking about like 
the most hyped or greatest NBA prospect ever. Like, LeBron did just come out 20 years ago. Like, we're not talking mm-hmm. about someone like 80 years ago. It's like, wow, we weren't around to see that hype. Like, do you guys remember how hyped LeBron yeah. James was, man? And again, it's not it's not to diminish how great Wemanyama could be. I mean, he, he based on all the scouting intel and his performance at the professional level already in France and in Europe, like, very possible he could be one of the all-time greats. But to pretend as if we didn't see the hype machine and the hype train that was LeBron 20 years ago and then see him live up to that and then some after that, like, it's not Wemanyama hate to say, like, pump the brakes on saying he's the greatest prospect ever in the NBA, let alone in the history of team sports. Yeah. It's also just a lot of pressure to put on a very That's young man, you know? But yeah. also, you know, these people who work in NBA media have a vested interest in sure, I guess. juicing excitement for the NBA product, so... Maybe it's not totally surprising, but yeah, that's a that's an awful lot of pressure to put on. Was he nineteen? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Do people put that kind of pressure on you guys at nineteen? They're like, <laughs> so, man, Joe Wolfon will be the greatest. I, when I was score writer, and, when I was doing close captioning at the score at nineteen, I just felt the weight of expectations of the franchise on me. And like LeBron, you lived up to them and then some. <laughs> no, that's you. true. That's actually true. Um, so yeah, San Antonio gets one B. Um, they're obviously incredibly blessed at center. The storylines are sort of covered it there. I, I thought it was interesting. So the other team that was right there with them was the Charlotte Hornets, um, who I believe had actually jumped up slightly in the odds to even get to that position. Um, it was, you know, the last two cards, and it was like either they're going to draw San Antonio or they're going to draw Charlotte, and that's going to determine who's going to be a number one. Obviously, the Hornets came up, and I just thought that was interesting because this has happened a couple of times to the Hornets. And I know this is the Raptor show, but I just I had to look up the, the history AD here. draft, man. MKG, Dude, that's the one. Also, so the Spur, yeah. the the set of combinations that won the Spurs the lottery mm-hmm. came with having like the third seed in the lottery. Let's say like the uh, the equivalent of having the third worst record. Yeah, yeah. The Hornets, as late as February twelfth, had the third worst record in the league, mm-hmm. and then inexplicably even with LaMelo missing a lot of time, yeah. suddenly started competing on defense and ended up going 12-12 and 12 down the stretch of the season <laughs> to play themselves out of that third seed, which oh would have God. ended in uh, Webanyama. Mark yeah. Williams, baby. Mark they Williams? Don't need, they don't need Victor, man. They got Mark Williams. They're set. Svee Mihalik was going off, if I remember. Tail Maladon was, was having a good time. Yeah. yeah, I remember having to come on this show and gas up the fact that the Raptors beat the Charlotte Hornets back-to-back on the road. No easy feat, okay? Um... But, yeah, so 2004, there was an expansion draft. They got the number two pick. Um, they missed out on Dwight Howard that year uh, and got Emeka Okafor, who was perfectly solid. Like, if you like 10 and 10 with two blocks, like, Emeka Okafor is your guy, right? Um, but, yeah, clearly they missed you, out. You don't like that with the number two pick, unfortunately. You really don't. Um, 2006, which the Raptors actually won the number one pick. Uh, there's an Andrea Bernani jersey actually just hanging outside the office, so we walked past it. Um, sorry, Cash. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... The Hornets that year had the second worst record in the league at 18 and 64. Um, however, they ended up having to pick third, which was important because the second pick in that draft was actually the best player, Lamarcus Aldridge. And so instead, the uh, Charlotte Hornets ended up with uh, Adam Morrison, which actually was with the Bobcats at that time. And then, of course, as you mentioned, 2012, 7 and 59. You won seven games total the entire it's the, year. It's the worst losing percentage. Or sorry, the worst winning percentage, <laughs> the best losing percentage in That's a right. season in NBA history. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they came away with MKG. Did anyone ever explain why MKG shot like that? Like, why did he, why was he shooting with one hand and then blocking himself with the other hand? 
These are the hard-hitting questions scouts need to be asking. That's what I'm saying. Like, those scouts were like, ooh, I watched. Because it wasn't like he was playing in, like, France or something were, like, more obscure. Like, like he was playing at Kentucky, and it was like, oh, I I guess he's the number number two pick, even though he's blocking himself on every jumper. Michael Jordan watched that guy play and watched that unorthodox jumper and release, to say the least, Mm. and said, that's the guy we're building the franchise around. Yeah. That's, uh... That's how it kind of goes with Charlotte. I mean, this is probably the first time we've talked about Charlotte uh, on this podcast, uh, yeah. on the Raptors show. But you know, just to add it is just to injury to that, though, New Orleans, the team that relocated from Charlotte is the team that wound up getting the number one pick and getting <laughs> oh, Anthony yeah, Davis. That's, yeah. that's right. Like, what an indignity. Yeah. yeah. Um, Imagine being a Hornets fan. Yeah. So um, they will get an op- another opportunity to draft a uh, score-first uh, combo guard. <laughs> I feel like that is also their... Their go-to move. So I mean, it's not like they lost. Like they're they're still in a good position, I think. But, no, I um, mean Lamelo and Scoot could be a hell of a backcourt for a long time. Mm. What do you do with the other um, score first cards that they've had accumulated on the roster for a while? None of them matter. I suppose I mean, they already let Malik. I'm Monk not trying to be harsh, no but like I don't think they're gonna pass on Scoot because Terry Rozier <laughs> is there. No, that's fine. You're yeah, right. that's what I'm saying. Like none of them matter in the grand scheme of what the Hornets are trying to build. The only ones that matter now are Lamelo mm. and assuming Scoot or whoever they take with that second and game. Mark Williams. Mark and Mark Williams. Maybe Nick Richards. Um, who Alex yesterday on the show said. JT Thor. He had just found out Mark Williams was not an NBA executive. And that he, <laughs> he is indeed uh, mm. their, their franchise center apparently. Anyway, so um, the relevant parts from the draft. Um, so there will be a discussion that comes up. And it probably is already coming up already. But Portland moves up to third. Um, there was, that was the big excitement. was like, oh, my God, Portland made the jump. They didn't ultimately get number one. Um, but they do get up to third, and it's an interesting conversation because I think if they got up to one, they probably would have just, like, kept Wemby and then told Dame, like, yo, we're not trading Wemby. But when you get to third, all of a sudden you have this opportunity where it's like, now we have a really, really good trade chip, and if we want to continue to be dedicated towards building around Damian Lillard, the third pick could be in play. I think Houston at four, that could be in play as well. Um, I mean, even Detroit at five, I could see them trying to make moves. It feels like for them, they want to expedite their process a little bit. So there probably is an opportunity to trade into the top of the draft. And I think for both of you guys, like, do you see the Raptors as a team that should be trying to move in that direction? Which ironically, they could have just kind of did it anyway if they tanked. But, you know, still. Yeah, I mean, I saw some people making that point. We were making jokes about it. And, you know, jokes always supersede facts. But, like... They would have been hard pressed to tank to the extent that Portland did down the stretch. Yeah, unless they were willing to like move Siakam or shut him down for the season. Like I, I don't think they would have had the kind of you know post deadline drought that the Blazers intentionally had. I don't think they would have been able to. They mm-hmm. would have had to lose eight more games or win eight less games and finish behind eight additional teams, and they did. I'm not. I'm not saying it was impossible to do that, but sure, it's sure. just easier said then done yeah now they they could have had like a top 10 pick and ultimately that still would have been better than having the 13th pick but you know they made the decision that they made we don't have to relitigate it at this point i think they should be open to anything i i think you know part of what frustrated me about the decision they made at the deadline was they i i don't think it's that they totally took this option off of the table like i think if there's a deal there where they have a chance to maybe trade with Portland and get that number three pick and reorient their timeline a bit, they should still be very open to that. Mm -hmm. But they made it more difficult by trading their pick next year with very light protection 
so that and I know like people are saying next year's draft class is super weak, but still like a top six protection on that pick makes it kind of hard to go into next season being like, oh, okay, now we're starting the rebuild. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or you got to make sure you're really bad, like bad enough to stay, you know, in the top six in lottery odds. So And and the only way to guarantee that you get a top six pick is, is by... To be one of the three worst teams. One right? of the two worst teams. Oh, yeah. The third worst team Damn. still has a chance to get the seventh pick. Yeah. So... And, and to put that in perspective, so um, the Portland Trailblazers, who obviously, you know, they tank, but... Some of the players on this roster, this is this should be like who he played for, or maybe who he played for previously, because there's a lot of guys on this list I do not re- remember. John Butler, you guys know John Butler? Oh sure, yeah. Just another NBA executive slash NBA uh, player, um, Chance Comanche. That's not a real person. That's a real person. I'm. Did I pronounce his name right? No, I don't think I did. But uh, Chance, all right, it's Chance came off the bench. Um, Jonathan Williams, that was one of my favorites. Oh, yeah, oh, I did actually message Wolf on one night towards the end of the season, being like, "Bro, some guy named Jonathan Williams played for the Blazers today," and that is not to disparage someone's name who no, their parents fine, gave man. them. It's more so just His to parents be gave like, jeans for a know, name. Just, it's more so just to be like, "This is the state of the Blazers' season and how yeah. bad they're taking." Someone named Jonathan Williams logged minutes for them tonight. I think started for them one. Oh no, he started like lots of games for them. By the way, I'm looking at their box score. From game eighty two, where they lost one fifty seven to one hundred one to the, the to the Golden State Warriors, one fifty seven to this point, and uh, I know you talked. had talked about like the raps, uh-huh. you know, yeah. and, and whether this is kind of like the path they should go down. You look at Portland's roster. That's and, what you have to do to get and, to that top six pick. If and you also, want to. though, but if you look at the roster and like if you're actually talking about say like the Raptors trying to trade with them and you know mm-hmm. put on t- like, okay. Obviously, if Portland's trading the three pick, it's to build around Dame, right? Yeah. So Dame's yeah, off the table. Yeah. And then it's like, they're not trading that pick and Sharp, unless they're getting like a legit star star. It's like, they're yeah, not yeah. doing it for anyone on the Raptors. So then it's like, okay, how are they, how is Portland even building a package with that pick to also match salary with someone like a Siakam? Because it's like, do, do the Raptors really want to take on the final three years and 54 million of Nurk's deal? Uh, I don't think so. No. Do the Blazers put Simons on the table? Is that what it is? It would have to be like Simons and that pick. And yeah. also, they would have to probably wait till after the draft and after they sign the guy who's going to go number three because then the salary would be about like $8 million. You combine it with Simons. Mm. That brings you to about thirty. You can make that deal yeah, for yeah. Siakam. But if it's not Simons and the Raptors obviously don't want Nurk and it's not Dame, then it's like... How are they getting there? Like, the, their next biggest contract after those guys is Nasir Little at, like, six and a half a year. Solid young player sure, on a really him, good yeah. deal, but that doesn't get you to the contract, like, the salary matching perspective to get one of the Raps' big guys. So, mm-hmm. I I agree with the idea, and I think everything should be on the table for the Raptors, but, it's again, it's one of those, like, easier said than done things. Like, sure, Siakam sure. for the number three pick, you definitely think about it, but how does Portland get there in a way that actually satisfies the Raptors? I, I don't know. Well, I think, I mean, it, it may not be the Raptors, but if you are a team that is willing to trade an established star for the number three pick in the draft, I think you're just willing to take back the Nurkic contract as the cost of doing business. And you're saying... Maybe you could reroute it, I guess. Yeah, reroute it. Or, like, we're thinking long-term anyway. What does it really matter? We'll eat the money, and we get the number three pick. Like, I think... I, I mean, g- obviously, if, if you know, I were in that situation, I'd be pushing for Simons instead. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know. I think that might be a bridge too far for Portland, depending on what they're getting. But, you know, if we're throwing hypotheticals around, like, let's say it's Pascal. Pascal for... Simons at number three. I'm very interested in that I, as yeah, the Raptors. For sure. 
am I interested in that as the Blazers? I'm not sure. I, honestly, if I was the Blazers, I wouldn't really be interested in trading number three anyway. Exactly. Yeah. I'd be looking probably to go in the other direction, but, you know, they're in the position they're in. They're beholden to Dame in the way that they're beholden to Dame. And so, I don't know, maybe there's an opportunity there. I guess it also depends. I mean, it's obvious to say this, but I guess it also depends, right? Like how teams value, whether it's Scoot Henderson that falls to three, although I doubt it, or Brandon Miller, who's mm-hmm. supposed to go to three, uh, Tom- Thompson, yeah. is it the Twins? Thompson the Twins, twins. Yeah. yeah. Amen. And they, I they had a very Oster. forgettable interview. Oster, that's at, yeah. at no, the, but I'm saying like it's a, who, whoever teams see as the number three yeah. guy, it depends on how they value that prospect, right? If, if they see that guy as like a potential franchise-level star, then... Yeah, to your point, it's like you you can take back Nurk's bad contract. That's the cost of doing business. You just brought in a potential franchise-changing star. But if teams view that guy as more of like a, you know, like a solid, maybe all-star, so it's like at that point, I don't think you're taking back a bad contract to also give Portland an established star for that guy. You know what I mean? So so much of it just depends on how that guy is valued. Yeah. Um, do you, I mean, I guess... This is a better question for draft experts, but do you think a number three pick will end up being as good as a player like Pascal Siakam in this case? That's the part that's that's one of the big questions you have to ask yourself, right? But like, yo, the odds are against pretty much any player at any draft slot amounting to a player as good as Pascal. Like, just statistically, sure, you're right, yeah. you're right, you're right, you're right. It's, that's unlikely to happen. Yeah, but. But it might line up your your, your salaries and your timeline a little bit better. But just, the thing is, you have to pivot a lot in the other direction. You do, but like yeah. at, at a certain point. Those are the odds that you have to play. Yeah, that's fair. You get to a point where it becomes imperative that you do pivot. Otherwise, you get stuck on that treadmill. Yeah. And I don't know if the Raptors are there yet, but they're, I think, dangerously close to putting themselves on that. Oh, come you know, on. We, we sent Bobby Webster to New York for a 1% chance. Actually, I think it was Chicago, wasn't oh, sorry, it? Sorry, sorry. Yeah. It was Chicago, yeah. yeah. So we sent him to Chicago for a 1% chance. So that he could sit there, and obviously, you know, you end up in the you you didn't get make the playoffs. And meanwhile, on the other side, you only have the you know the thirteenth pick. Like you, you are in the middle right right now. Like it's we're not stuck in the middle because we have like you could pivot off these guys. No one's on a bad contract right now, but no. you know it's but it's not a great it was position. Like, but what they did, and this is exactly what we said when we talked about it after the deadline, was they consigned themselves to the middle. Like they yes. made it more difficult for them to move in one direction or another with yeah. I mean really like they made it more difficult for themselves to move down yeah why because in order to move up very very slightly yeah watching Bobby Webster as the the Raptors logo was revealed beside the 13th pick it was like watching Alex at the poker table just come up empty and look miserable doing it that's my that's my uh monthly Alex Showed up when he's not here. When we're on when we're on the Raptors show, the Paul Simon sounds of silence yeah. needle drop comes in. Yeah, uh, my, my my joke, which is I, only I can make this joke on this program right currently, but um, they they sent Bobby there for Asian Heritage Month. Anyway, uh, the Pistons uh, had a fourteen percent chance at Wembenyama, fell to fifth. Um, yeah, so I, I think I was listening to the the Hoop Collective where Brian Windhorst was doing the podcast. I mean, I suppose I guess he did it from Paris. He must have. Um, but he was t- telling a story how the Pistons had, a, you know, a staff team dinner scheduled in in Chicago, and apparently you could hear a pin drop. His <laughs> they the fifth pick oh, oh, is the worst possible outcome for the team with the worst record. You can't move down more than four spots. 
If you finish with the worst record, which, by the way, the Pistons finished with the worst record by five full games behind anyone else mm, yeah. and ended up with the worst possible lottery outcome. Yeah. If that is not just deflating on top of the fact that, like, the guy they actually did draft number one overall a couple years ago only played 12 seasons this year. I think he's only played, like, 50 games total in the NBA. Like, yeah. Just, oh, Yeah, it's tough. Brutal. I, I really wanted to see the Pistons play their five centers at once. Um, what, you know, they, they just have a lot of bigs on their roster. And it could perpetually. They have Isaiah Stewart, who I, I understand is now being pivoted to being power forward. He's shooting a lot of threes these days. But you have Jalen Duran. You have James Wiseman, you have Marvin Bagley, Bagley and then you were going to add Wemba Nyama to this. Like, I was actually happy for Wemby they didn't end up with it. Anyway, um, uh, let, let's pivot over to the actual basketball that took place after uh, the draft lottery. So um, the Lakers and Nuggets played just an absolute barn burner. Um, the Nuggets uh, offensively just were a little bit too much for the Lakers to handle, even though the Lakers made a late comeback and were in position a couple of times there to, to tie LeBron, decided to try to pull up for three over Jamal Murray, in the final moment there, missed it, and that pretty much kind of clinched the game um, and ended the comeback. But, uh, yeah, Wolfon, I'll start with you. What were some of your big takeaways from uh, watching the first game between these two sides? I think it's going to be a really good series. I think they're pretty well matched. I, I still think Denver is the better team. I mm. think they have more weapons. <clears throat> that offense is just a bear. Like, it's so hard to stop between the innumerable ways that Jokic can hurt you and just all of the cutting and movement shooting they have around him. Like, that's a really good shooting team. Sure. And we yeah. saw that in that game. I thought they, they were, what, like 15 for 32 from deep. And it and, came from everybody, too. Like, it wasn't like one guy or two guys got hot. Like, you got three threes from Michael Porter Jr., which you can do that. Jokic with three threes. Four from Jamal Murray. Three from KCP. Yeah. And you got Jeff Green and Bruce Brown with, with the three off the bench, too. So, I, I think in light of that, I was really impressed with the way that the Lakers were able to hang with them. Mm -hmm. The Nuggets played, I mean, at least until like probably the last six minutes of the game when their offense kind of went haywire and Jamal Murray seemed to run out of gas. They played like a perfect offensive game. And the Lakers were right there at the end because Mm -hmm. A, I mean, they came up with, I I think, a pretty important and interesting defensive adjustment in putting Hachimura on Jokic and moving AD onto Gordon. I think... You know, we, we kind of knew that something like that would probably happen at some point in the series. I don't know that we expected it to be Rui who was checking Jokic. Like, I think maybe it would be LeBron. Maybe it would be Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. Rui is an interesting one because he's quite strong. He is very strong. You know, like yeah. he can uh, – nobody can slow down Jokic. Nobody can really prevent him from doing what he wants to do. But with AD helping on the backside, if he's able to roam off of Gordon – Rui can do enough to prevent Jokic from getting those deep, deep catches, right? Um, and that that saves LeBron a lot of wear and tear. You know, if if LeBron had to take on that assignment, I think that would make it more difficult for him to do what he did at the offensive end in this game, mm-hmm. which I thought was brilliant. Him, like the biggest pressure point I think the Lakers found offensively was just LeBron mismatch hunting against Jamal Murray. Yep. And um, the Nuggets, I thought, for... A huge portion of that game were just way too willing to give that switch. Mm-hmm. That switch was getting cooked. Mm-hmm. But then when the Nuggets went to, you know, the hedge and recover coverage, that got cooked too. So I think, you know, the, the Nuggets are kind of going to have their hands full with the Lakers offense as well. And I, I'm just interested to see kind of where the, the tactical chess match goes from here. Yeah, and as we were talking about on the pod today too, one of the interesting wrinkles with Rui on Jokic and then... uh AD on Gordon 
is that at least in game one, the Nuggets let the Lakers off the hook in the sense that they then made the Lakers defensive uh, strategy easier because Aaron Gordon was just chilling in the dunker spot. And that, and if AD's on him and the guy's in the dunker spot, AD's close to the rim, mm-hmm. you know, that he so greatly controls. the space out of the three though? Well, it's not about spacing out the three, but can they not involve Aaron Gordon in more actions in a way to get AD moving, right? In a way, like I get that, yeah, you're not going to have him stationed like in the corner or something. He's mm-hmm. not a shooting threat, but he has some playmaking chops. Like they can definitely get him involved in actions where maybe he ca- catches it on the short roll, kind of does like a, you know, I don't know, offensively, I guess you'd say like a poor man's Draymond imitation, but do something that moves AD around in ways that the Warriors did. You're not going to be able to do it to the same extent, but try it a little bit, right? Rather, mm-hmm. because if if he's on AG and and Gordon's just in the dunker spot, like you're kind of letting the Lakers off the hook. Davis is just going to chill by the rim. Yeah, it's yeah. not going to be about spacing him out because that's not going to work. It's about moving him. Yeah. AD is not going to respect Gordon no matter where he's standing. He's not going to respect him if he's standing out behind the three-point line. Sure. So you don't want him spotting up. What you do want him doing is, like, setting off-ball screens. Yeah. Like, pin-in mm-hmm. screens, you know, flare screens, things like that, where if AD is disrespecting him to that extent, you're taking advantage of that space. Yeah. And some, you know, this bevy of movement shooters that the Nuggets have from KCP to Murray to MPJ, any of those guys can get loose for a three if AD is not willing to come out. Yeah. That's actually something the Raptors run into this problem a lot, um, where they have somebody who's in the dunker spot who, you know. Yeah. But the Raptors don't have movement shooters. Well, so. yeah. let's put that aside for a second. All right. Um, because they have a lot of things that the Nuggets have uh, that don't have, but like, a guy like Scotty, for example, gets caught in this position all the time. But, you know, what Scotty will do will, you know, as you mentioned, like little set up pin screen, uh, pin down for someone to get open for a three. Or, you know, he does a really good job of curling up to maybe the top of the floor, maybe the top of the paint right there and sort of make it a little bit easier for the catch and catch AD sleeping a couple of times. Like, I think there are more adjustments to be made um, on that front. I also thought it was interesting because Jokic did kind of make one of the game clinching plays at the end there. When it was a three-point game and it was like 30 seconds left, so the, the Lakers were going to get the ball back. Um, they did run the play where they got Jokic the ball in the post against Ruri, but Jokic went really quickly yeah. and actually beat AD to the spot. Um, I mean, that's something where, you know, again, there, there's definitely more ways to play it. But it was interesting to watch the Lakers sort of make a couple of adjustments there. Um, offensively, I was I was really impressed with the Lakers, man. They shot 84% of the rim. Um, how can the Nuggets defend the Lakers better? Because I don't know if they're going to score 130 every game. That, it's, that's kind of unrealistic. Yeah, it's but tough without like great rim protection, right? Uh, well, okay. So I mean, a couple things. Can they like zone up, for example? Like they, I I wouldn't mind seeing them zone up. Yeah, they did it in the regular season to pretty good effect. Uh, I think it that allows them to kind of pack the paint a little bit, force the Lakers to be more of a jump shooting team, mitigate some of the mismatch hunting a little bit. Um. You know, from a process perspective, I I didn't have a problem with a lot of what they did apart from just being too willing to give that switch. Right. And if you have to give that switch, you have to give it. But, like, make the Lakers work for it. Don't just give the the soft switch. Mm-hmm. Like, it can be a late switch or it can be a switch and double. But LeBron was just way too comfortable anytime he got that matchup. Put Murray in foul trouble, like, yep. had his way with him. And as we said, they just also have to be sharper with whether they're switching or not. Like, mm-hmm. if you, so yeah, down oh, that's the why stretch, Reeves kept getting open for three. Down yeah. the stretch of that game, it was like Aaron Gordon clearly 
realized they were not supposed to be switching anymore. Mm -hmm. But Murray seemed confused about whether to switch hedge or what. Yeah. And then he was always late recovering back to Reeves. He was like running backwards to him. He was turned around. It was yeah. so. But, it, but they like, just have to be sharper, even yeah. if they're like switching or not. They better be sharper with those schemes. Yeah. The the play that bothered me the most, and I mentioned this on our pod today, but like one of those Reeves threes. It, the Lakers are not running this on an empty side, right? Which, I mean, they probably should do that more. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, have, have if it's Reeves running the inverted pick and roll with LeBron, have him pop to the empty side where there isn't a helper there to rotate. Sure. Yeah. Both of the, the pick and pop threes he got in the fourth quarter was on a full side. One of them, there was just Hachimura in the corner and MPJ guarding him. MPJ didn't move. Yeah. Like, that's got to be a stunt, if not a full rotation, like... Mm -hmm make Reeves swing the ball and make Hachimura hit that three instead. Yeah. Or at least stunt and make him think about it. But he didn't move. The, the more galling one was Schroeder and Hachimura on one of those threes were both standing in the corner. Like the Lakers botched their spacing. Uh-huh. So both KCP and MPJ are there. And if, if MG, MPJ just like straight up rotates, like runs yep, out at yep. Reeves, then KCP is still there to play between two guys. Yeah. And it and it's Schroeder and Hachimura, right? Like you're still way happier giving up a three to one of those guys than you are to Reeves. And so it's stuff like that that they can clean up where mm -hmm. it's like I, they can do the hedge and recover thing and get away with it if they have a third defender there who's at least going to stunt and make things a little bit more difficult for Reeves. I also suggested maybe like move Murray off of the Reeves assignment because then like, if it's KCP there instead, I think you trust him a little bit more to do the hedge and recover thing, and maybe you even trust him more to switch if that's where you want to go with that. Mm -hmm. uh, he's taller than Murray but weighs less, so I don't know. But point being, like, if the Lakers want to keep hunting Murray, yeah, make them do it with, like, Schroeder as the screener instead, who's, yeah. like, a way less dangerous shooter. No, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, I, do you see the Lakers changing their starting lineup for, for game two? Yeah. We, we were talking about this, too, like... I guess they could start Rui and just start him on sure, Jokic yeah. right away or, yeah. I don't know, figure something like that out. I, I think they will just based on some of the success they found. And that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that they're just going to, like, stick with Rui on Jokic, obviously, because I think yeah. the Nuggets can... Because they kind of already tipped their hand a little bit. Like, the Nuggets, yeah. I'm sure, in the course of practice today, for example, are very much working on ways to attack that. Yeah. You know? And and at the end of the day, like, Jokic will find a way. Like, oh, I yeah. mean, we can, we can talk about, like, tactics and all that, and that obviously will decide the series, how these teams adjust and stuff. But at the end of the day, it's like, this dude's just the best player on the planet. Like... 34 yeah. points on 70% shooting, 20 shooting possessions, yeah. 21 rebounds, six of them offensive, 14 <laughs> assists, two blocks. Uh, it's uh, the second time he's had 30, 20, and 10 in a playoff game. The only guys who have even done that once are Wilt and Kareem. Like, yeah. again, don't get me wrong. Obviously, yeah, if you're the Lakers, you got to find ways to try to slow them and, and adjustments. And then if you're the Nuggets, you have to counter those adjustments. But, like, the biggest takeaway to me is still, like, this guy's just the best player on the planet. And it's hard. It's going to be hard to beat his team four out of seven times over a two-week span. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the crazy thing, like, so you mentioned the stat line. He had 31, 19, and 12 after three. Yeah. And so right. what did he want? He went up three points in the fourth quarter. All free you know, throws. Yeah. All free throws. Giannis voice. Um, <laughs> oh, man. So, so like, they, uh, they actually... Why did you do that to DeMar, man? <laughs> why? You didn't have to do that. Had to do it. <laughs> they actually kept a lid on him in the fourth quarter. And so, like, to your point about the Nuggets are probably working on, you know, countering that coverage in practice today. Yeah. Are you a little disappointed that they 
weren't ready for it off the hop. Like it's not like sure, they sure. it's not like they didn't see it at points during the regular season, right? Like the the Sixers did it with PJ Tucker, mm-hmm. Raptors did it with OG, yep. And both of those teams had their centers on Aaron Gordon doing yep. the roaming thing. Like you probably knew this was coming at some point. I, I was a little disappointed that they weren't ready for it in game one. Yeah, that's and, fair. And on the flip side, I was impressed by Darvin Ham again and the Lakers coaching style. Like since this guy got a squad to actually work with, he's been really good. And not just in, you know, wins and losses, which he's been great since they made the changes. Like even when you just look at the tactics, the in-game adjustments, the in-series adjustments, yeah. Darvin Ham looks like a really good coach right now. Yeah, for sure. Um circling the conversation back to, to Jokic real quickly. One thing I you know, obviously this has been such a discussion all year about Jokic versus Embiid. It's probably going back a couple of years now. I think one thing that's really impressed me with Jokic in watching this game, for a man that big, he the, the way he's able to play that fast, push the break a lot himself, which is already fairly rare for centers to do in the first place, but for him to maintain that kind of intensity and that energy, like that's what got the Nuggets off to such a great start, got got them up 20 at halftime, was just Jokic pushing the pace, rebounding, and then just running. And then if you watch Jokic, one thing he'll do is he would just like stay, he would just like hop, almost like, he doesn't really like, like plod from place to place like most big centers do, but he's like constantly on the balls of his feet and con- almost like on, in a permanent hop so that you see most most times when he's rebounding the ball and you had a play with yesterday where you got like four or five rebounds on the same play. Um, but he's always constantly just like light on his feet for a guy that big and is also able to maintain that endurance. Whereas like when I watch him beat in the playoffs, he just looks slow. He looks plodding. It's like it just looks miserable. And there's just like that's a big difference in the game. And I think it's really impressive that Jokic is able to do that for a man his size. It's like a large part of his success is just them playing this fast. Yeah, and it plays out in the results too, to your point, when yeah. you're comparing those two bigs, right? Like Jokic is always available. Not that he's playing literally 82, but you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. the most part, he's always available. He's always available in the playoffs. He excels in the playoffs. Like despite already being an MVP level superstar in the regular season, he then takes his game to another level mm-hmm. every year in the playoffs. And on the flip side, whether through any fault of his own or not, Joel Embiid, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to be like physically able to withstand the toll of an entire season, what it would take for a long playoff run. He's always picking up some sort of injury. Some of them obviously just bad luck, but he's always picking up some sort of injury late in the season or in the playoffs. To your point, he always looks slow and often gassed by the time yeah. like the late heavy minute playoff games come around. Like, you know, there's a reason why the results play out the way they have. Where the Nuggets, you know, in the three years now that they've had Jokic and Jamal Murray healthy for the playoffs, they've gotten to game seven of the second round, the conference finals, and at least the conference finals. Yeah. And the Sixers haven't gotten past the second round once in the Embiid era. But they do get to game seven a remarkable amount of times. <laughs> yeah. You can definitely bet on the Sixers getting to game seven. Um, yeah, just uh, just really impressed. I'm really excited about this series, and uh, I'm hoping to see uh, a lot uh, more of it, and I'm hoping it goes seven games. Uh, did did I? What were your predictions before before yesterday's game for the series? Nuggets make five, five. Yeah, and I would probably five. even even though they won that game one, I'd probably revise that now to say six or seven. But I don't know. I I I liked the matchup for them. I still like it for them. But the Lakers showed me something in that game one. Okay. I, I would have said Nuggets in six probably because I think five would be a little too short. Don't quite think the Lakers would push to seven. I would have said Nuggets in six, and I think I'm pretty confident in that still. But yeah, yeah, the Lake the Lakers have the goods to make this a long series. But here's what I'll say, and I said this on our pod today. Like, if the Nuggets can do that again, what you mentioned, just dominating the transition game, mm-hmm. I think it's a short series. 
I don't think that the Lakers. But they always do that at home. That's like the that's, that's the huge benefit yeah. of having home court advantage in that scenario. Yeah. In the elevation in Denver, by the way, like where yeah. they already have an insane home court advantage based on how good they are, but also because of the elevation, right? You're killing them in transition in the in the thin air in Denver, where I think the Nuggets haven't lost at home yet in the playoffs. No, 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 they're seven and zero now, and they were thirty four and seven, I think, yeah. in the regular so season. Forty one and seven at home now this year. Raptors should have taken one of those if it wasn't for Scott Foster. Oh, drafting Scotty Barnes, by the way, yeah. that was a great adjustment by Nick Nurse. Should have taken one of those by sticking OG on Nikola Jokic and having Jakob Pertl roaming off of Aaron Gordon. It can be a winning tactic. I mean, I'm I'm yeah. curious to see how. The Nuggets adjust to it. I have no doubt that they will. Mm-hmm. But I look forward to shortly after this airs uh, the report that Joe Wolfon is interviewing for the Raptors job. Yeah, I would not be upset if they're Joe casting Wolfon a wide went. net. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're they're talking to podcasters. <laughs> so get ready, get your resume ready. Anyway, uh, we're gonna take a quick break. I've been your host Walloon. You've been listening to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Uh, on the other side of this break, we will talk about uh, the Eastern Conference. Um, finals matchup big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in leafsland real kipper and born be sure to subscribe and download the show on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts have you checked out bet rivers yet download the bet rivers online casino and sportsbook app today get in the action this basketball season with thousands of betting options plus don't forget about bet rivers sportsbook award-winning customer service it's a whole new game with bet rivers online casino and sportsbook must be 19 plus available in ontario only please play responsibly if you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone close to you please contact connects ontario at 1-866-531-2600 to speak to an advisor free of charge welcome back to the raptor show on the sports radio network i'm your host Wim Lou. i continue to be joined by joseph Bisharo and Joe Wolf on of the score. Listen to Pound the Rock, um, you know, everywhere you find podcasts. And, you know, this episode will probably feel a little reductive just because we're going to cover on the same themes. But uh, I, I do have a curveball to throw at you guys before we talk about Heat Celtics, uh, which will leave probably like 10 minutes for, let's just say. So Chris Haynes had a, a great report uh, over at uh, Bleacher Report, just kind of, you know, it's one of those classic rumor, you know, um, pieces where they sort of covers a whole bunch of storylines. I picked out a couple of them that are pretty interesting here. So number one, um, James Harden is expected to decline his $36 million player option for next year. Uh, and now he wants a full four-year max. Uh, he will only entertain suitors w- that have A, a competitive roster, and B, have a situation where Harden can be situated to be the star of that roster. Houston is obviously... So he will be entertaining no offense. Yeah, because as we were just joking off the air before we came back on, any team where James Harden at this stage of his career is the star is not a competitive team. Okay, how competitive are we talking about? Right, right? that's because the thing. Define competitive, yeah. It's not like James Harden had a bad year. Like No, he, he led the league in assists. He led the league in assists, which was probably like five pick and pops to Joel Embiid. Um, plus some other ones, obviously. Um, he, he can't... I mean, like, I, don't, I mean, you know, but, we saw the the capability of a James Harden twice in the Sixers, uh, in, in the, the Celtics series. I mean, if it wasn't for James Harden, they definitely wouldn't even have a chance to blow them. If it, if it wasn't seven. for James Harden, they would not have been able to get to a point where they're in an elimination game and we know they fold, correct? But um, we know him and Joel Embiid fold in those situations. Yeah. But... I'll also say to, to your point, like it's not that I think he can't be a good player or even still maybe an all-star. 
on a competitive team. It's that I don't think he can be the best player on a team that is competing for anything of significance. And that's where it's like, I don't know, how much of this is also just bluster, right? It's like, yeah, sure, you want a four-year deal, but is anyone, I don't think any competitive team's giving you a big four-year deal. And if you want to go back to Houston, that's fine. If that's where you're comfortable, all the power to you. If that, maybe you will get a four-year deal there. But are they really going to be competitive in the next year or two? I highly doubt it, especially now that we know the lottery broke the way it did. Like, yeah. So what about the Sixers? I mean, like, the Sixers don't really have a replacement for Harden if he does walk, so they kind of need him. That's why this, this is, is like lose, their, lose their high-class version of Fred. It's they, they need each other, and I don't know if Harden feels that way or if he recognizes it, but the best course of action for him at this stage of his career, 100% would be to go back there and just try and do this again. And I, I, I know there's probably some, like, residual bad feeling about that. Mm. Certainly, like, within the fan base, I don't know about within, like, the player personnel group. And by try, you mean try until the Sixers face elimination. Yes. <laughs> Again. They are remarkably good at getting three wins. <laughs> um, but, like, I, I just, like, look around the league and find me a team that has cap space that would be able to even make a four-year max offer to Harden mm. that is remotely in the realm of being competitive. Like, does such a team exist? I saw, there was one report, I can't even remember who put it out, that he had interest in Phoenix, which is, I mean, honestly, like, that's kind of interesting to me because, yeah. like, maybe a sign and trade for Chris Paul? Could that, oh, man. Mm, could that work? Why would the Sixers do that? Well, because if he's just saying, otherwise I'm going to walk and sign with the Rockets and you're going to lose me for nothing, they could say, all right, well, we... Really need a point guard. We can't mm. lose you for nothing. Yeah, Might as well take a flyer on 38-year-old Chris Paul. If there's one thing the Sixers need to address their postseason issues, <laughs> it's just signing and trading for a Hall of Fame point guard that has uh, been hobbled in the playoffs like five of the last seven years. Yeah, speaking of Chris Paul. Um, also At least you know sp- he'll go down swinging, though. Yeah. I feel like he would hate yeah, Joel Embiid. But. He's swinging someone's nuts. That's what yeah. Chris Paul does. <laughs> anyway, um, also in that Chris Paul report, or Chris Haynes report, uh, the Suns uh, are expected to guarantee Chris Paul's contract at $31 million for next season. And the expectation currently is that uh, he will start as the uh, point guard for the Phoenix Suns what's, next uh, season. What's his guarantee date, though? It's June 28th, and it's like the guarantee is only $15.8 million. So if they waived him before June 28th, then he would only get $15.8 million this year instead of the 31 or whatever it is. Yeah. And then also the second year, the last year of his contract, which is 2024, 2025, that's fully yeah. non-guaranteed. Yeah, but I would think, I don't know, maybe maybe it doesn't matter because any team that would be trading with them would presumably want to have Chris Paul on the roster next year and wouldn't just want to, like, waive him for nothing. But if they are dangling him, which, like, reports have indicated that they're dangling him, wouldn't they want to try and trade him before that guarantee date? So that, like, a team acquiring him could maybe say, all right, it's only $15 million guaranteed. Like, we can swallow that as yeah. opposed to $30 million. No, but, that's true. Like, maybe they will. Yeah. Um, okay, those are the Chris Haynes pieces. Sorry, we, we're going to have to talk about Heat Celtics. Um, so, look, as with any series involving with the Miami Heat this year, you can't just look at the, the talent on paper and say, well, this team has more, this team has less, you know, let's pick against the Heat. Mm. Clearly, this is a situation where the Celtics have much more talent than the Heat do. Um, however, the Heat have been excellent in the playoffs so far. Obviously excellent in round one. Jimmy Butler rolls his ankle. Hasn't really gone back.
he hasn't really gone back to that level, but that wasn't even necessary to beat Jalen Brunson running 80 pick and rolls a game with the, <laughs> with the with the New York Knicks. So, yeah, just real quickly, I just want one thing from each of you guys uh, on this series. Um, what are you looking for, Cash, in terms of as a decider, uh, deciding factor between these two teams? All right, I'll let Wolf on handle the tactics, and I'll just say, is Jimmy Butler the best player in this series? Because I think if yes. he is, if he outplays Jason Tatum, I think does the Heat have a chance for sure. Like, Wolfon always refers to their devil magic. I always refer to Heat culture. Eric Spolstra, you know he's going to... Even if you put a good coach on the other side of him, he might still coach circles around them. Like, sure. they're, they're going to have a chance in the series because of all that. If Jimmy Butler's the best player in the series, they've they've got a great shot to get to the finals again. Yeah, I'm going to be looking at, like, how is Miami scoring points, basically? Uh, <laughs> that's that's always the question with Miami. It always is. And they've found ways, like their their offense really fell off in the Knicks series. They really won that series with defense, but they still, they found ways. I, I said this to Cash, like they had the highest rim frequency of any second round team, mm. which is crazy for them because they were 28th in rim volume during the regular season. Also, the Knicks have bigs. Like you shouldn't even be able to yeah. score at the rim that often or even get to the rim that often. Yeah, and I will say like over the past couple of years, um, or maybe it was just last year, this year I think they were actually one of the lowest in terms of, like, opponent rim frequency. Mm. Um, but they have had schemes in the past where they will kind of invite teams to drive in and, like, funnel them toward their bigs at the rim. Uh, I don't think that was really what was happening in that series. It was basically happening because they were showing a lot of bodies to Jimmy. They're like, we're not going to let what happened to the Bucks happen to us. Uh. We'll make other people beat us. And the Heat kind of obliged, right? Like, they found enough ways to, to beat the Knicks rotations after they were throwing two on the ball. The Celtics don't really have to throw two on the ball. And I mean, I guess maybe you could say that about Milwaukee too. There's like, oh, we got Drew, Drew Holiday. Like we can handle Jimmy in single coverage. No mm-hmm. big deal. And, you know, we saw how that worked out for them. But just in terms of like their pick and roll coverages, I think they're mostly going to either switch or they're going to drop. And they'll say like, prove to us that you can beat us with pull-up jumpers the way that you did the Bucks. And if the Heat show that they can, if they go on another one of those shooting heaters, the Celtics just have counters, right? Like they, sure. they they can switch. They if they really want to, they can blitz and they can do a good job of kind of like recovering and handling the rotations on the backside because they are so big mm. and long. Um, so I'm just curious to see like can Miami find offensive pressure points, like enough ways to score on Boston's defense to win this series? Because I think you know their defense has proven in past matchups between these two teams. They have a pretty good beat on how to slow down the Celtics' offense. Oh, yeah. Um, um, go ahead. But it's, Yeah, but it's just going to come down to whether they can score enough to make that matter. Yeah. I feel like the Heat have had the less talented roster for the third straight time. But it's the third time they're fa- facing the conference finals in the last four years. Yep. Um, the Heat won it in the bubble. Um, the Celtics won it in seven last year, narrowly avoiding that collapse in the fourth quarter where Jimmy Butler famously pulled up, uh, I believe, on Al Horford and missed it for three. Um yeah, I mean, I, I think they consistently find ways to sort of gum up what the Celtics want to do. I, I, this, is what, this is one of those series I really wonder about the possession battle. Like, can Miami, like, step in for charges, which that seems to be their whole team-wide philosophy. Everybody, if you, the heat culture is just stepping in for a charge. Honestly, it really is. Everybody on that team will step in for a charge. Um, how many turnovers can they force? Um, and, and sort of how much can they sort of disrupt the Celtics? Mm-hmm. But to me, the, the, the other question defensively is just like, okay, so Jimmy will guard Tatum or Jimmy will guard Jalen Brown. Who's guarding the other big wing on the Celtics for Miami? Uh, I would say Martin, Caleb Martin. Yeah, yeah. Caleb and, Martin. And that's that's another one of the big questions I have. Yeah. Is like, I don't know. Is is Kevin Love starting, or are they 
you know, downsizing with that with that starting lineup and bringing Martin into the mix. That would be a chess match, though, right? Because you're essentially doing the same thing against Robert Williams that the Sixers were doing, right? And yeah, so like that, when I was talking about, you know, what what am I mo- most interested in tactically when we had this conversation on our pod? It was like, okay, so the Celtics kind of tilted the balance of that series against the Sixers by going back to that too big front court. That really helped them pull away in that series, I think. Against Miami, I you know, that either, to me, makes Kevin Love more playable than he might otherwise be in that series. Like, if mm. the Celtics go back to their Horford at five starting lineup with, like, Jalen Brown at four, I don't think the Heat can get away with starting Kevin Love. Yeah. Because who's fair. he going to guard? It's wild that we're talking about, like, Kevin Love. Whether Kevin Love might be starting yeah. in the Eastern Conference Finals in 2023. We're talking about, like, how much better on paper the Celtics are more shot creation talent, better defense, better team overall, home court advantage, and yet if Caleb Martin might have to guard one. Like, he's good, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah. But and and we're also saying all that and saying, but it's probably going to be a long series because of the heat. Like, yeah, I roll, won't sleep on Caleb Martin, man. No, I know, oh, he's I know, but well. I'm, I'm just saying, well. like, you know, roll your eyes all you want at the whole heat culture thing, but the fact that we are talking about this matchup as a competitive series is such a testament to yeah. Jimmy Butler, Eric Spolstra, and that heat culture. Yeah, fair. Um, what? Yeah. So I just, I guess, I wonder if they do do that. If they, if the Celtics start their small lineup, and the Heat do want to stay big and keep Kevin Love in the starting lineup, would they put Love on Horford and Bam on Jalen Brown? Yeah, there's going to be some very that that that's a very interesting um, adjustment, by the way. Anyway, uh, it's time for Between the Lines, brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. The line for that game tonight: uh, the Celtics are favored by eight points. Celtics minus eight. Honestly, I kind of like the Heat, not just to. To 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 gum up the game and and win it or not win it in a close game, but I, I think it'll be closer than than minus eight. I just think for the Celtics, like right now, they're obviously they had played the extra game, so Miami has uh, a, a greater rest advantage. They didn't have to travel at, at least uh, because the game is going to be in Boston. But I I don't know. I kind of like Miami to come in here tonight and, and sort of make the first blow here. I, I also think in terms of the coaching advantage. I think Spo clearly has it over Joe, and I think that, you know, you'll probably see some proactive adjustments here. So I actually like Miami uh, in this one. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was Between the Lines brought to you by Bet Rivers. is a whole new game, and that does it for us today. I've been your host, Will, and you've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Thanks once again to Joseph Richard and Joe Wolfon, our board producer, Derek Mandel, Jennifer Olin, for helping behind the scenes. And uh, we'll be back to talk to you tomorrow.